Podo. In signals intelligence, as in life, property acquisition is all about location, location, location. In 1938, on the eve of war with Hitler's Germany, Sir Hugh Sinclair, the head of MI6 at that time, opened his checkbook for the acquisition of a country estate in the rolling hills of Buckinghamshire, to the northwest of London. The building that he purchased was not an architectural wonder. It was a melange of styles from Victorian Gothic to Dutch Baroque, but it was good value and well located on the so-called varsity line between Oxford and Cambridge. And, crucially, Sir Hugh wasn't opening a boarding house. The property, Bletchley Park, would play host to Britain's interceptors and codebreakers. It would be known during the coming war alternately as Station X and the Government Communication Headquarters, GCHQ. This is a story of secrets and their unearthing, codes and their solving. It is the story of those intangible, unknowable things, enigmas. If you think of the great images of the Second World War, you'd likely think of the D-Day troops landing on the beaches of Normandy, or American soldiers raising the stars and stripes on Iwo Jima, or Soviet soldiers liberating Auschwitz and the horrors therein. What you probably, and quite rightly, wouldn't think of is a stately home in Milton Keynes. I say quite rightly, not because Milton Keynes, a notoriously concrete inflected 1960s time capsule, isn't an iconic place but because the work done at Bletchley Park during the Second World War would remain a total secret until the 1990s. Bletchley Park was the Second World War um, code-breaking location and organisation because that's um, how people refer to it. They're talking about a place, but actually referring in a way to Britain's code-breaking organisation during the Second World War, which broke the German and Japanese codes and ciphers. That's the voice of Michael Smith, a journalist and author who has written a number of books on Bletchley Park. He's also a renowned investigative journalist whose expose of the Downing Street memos in 2002 on the justifications for the Iraq war sent shockwaves through the Blair and Bush premierships. But that's another story. Britain's co-breaking organisation during the 30s, 20s and 30s, the interwar years, the Government Code and Cipher School was based in London and... By 1938, it was based at Broadway, opposite St James's Park Station. It was part of the MI6 building, and they needed to get people out of there, away from London, because they were concerned that there would be bombing. So they bought up a mansion at Bletchley Park, and in August 1938, they carried out a rehearsal. They all went up to Bletchley Park, sat there and did their work as if it was um, a normal place of work and tested it out. And then they went back again in August 1939. And the reason that particular place was picked was very, very good communications. It wasn't far from London, but it was far enough to be safe. It was accessible by both road and by rail. It was midway between Oxford and Cambridge, where most of the co-breakers were likely to come from. And crucially, it was on the main telephone trunk line going north from London. So it had good communications in every 
sense and was safe. And this was all totally covert. No one knew what was going on at Bletchley Park at this point. No, no one knew what was going on at Bletchley Park. And locals were told that it was about the air defence of London and people were working there on the air defence of London. The Enigma Machine, a mechanical cipher, was invented by German engineer Arthur Schwabius at the dusk of the First World War. It was patented, which seems a kind of crazy thing to think of for a secret coding instrument, in the 1920s with the English name Enigma. It fitted into a wooden box that looked something like an antique medicine chest, and stamped on its front was the Enigma logo, which looks both remarkably modern in its typography and like it should be on the grill of some gas-guzzling truck as it roars past the cornfields of the American Midwest. The machine was supposedly named in recognition of Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations, an orchestral work of the late 19th century which was ranked fourth in the 2021 Classic FM Hall of Fame. I'm listening to it now as I write this, though probably not as I read this, which rather confuses the interpretation of temporality and the ego. Am I the Nick that is writing this, or am I the Nick that is reading it? Anyhow, Elgar infused each of these variations with a cryptogrammatical reference to a friend or family member, hence the name. The most famous of these variations is the ninth, Nimrod, named for the ancient Mesopotamian king who built the Tower of Babel and whose hubris caused the scattering of languages across the world. His legacy was one of confusion and miscommunication, of wars, but also of separate and distinct cultures, flourishing in competing and complementary traditions, and also, of course, one of the most ubiquitous pieces of classical music in history, which your neighbour the one who gets the Union Jack bunting out for the Queen's birthday and the Wimbledon men's singles final, undoubtedly loves. Elgar died from colorectal cancer in February 1934. Just three months later, the other great British composer of the early 20th century... Gustav Holst passed away too. A quarter year that stripped the country's classical music scene back to just Rafe Vaughan Williams. Despite his Germanic-sounding name, indeed his father was called Adolf von Holst, Gustav Holst was born in that quintessentially Anglo setting, Cheltenham. Yeah, he was born in Cheltenham. I suppose he lived there probably for about the first 18, 19 years of his life there when he went to study with, at the Royal College in London. That's the voice of Colin Matthews a composer who was music assistant to Benjamin Britten. He now serves as executive administrator of the Hulse Foundation at the Britten Pierce Foundation in Aubrey. And I don't think he ever returned there. I mean, he was found it quite difficult to make a living as a composer in early years. He actually played as a trombonist in, in several orchestras, even playing, I think, with the Scottish National Orchestra under Richard Strauss. Eventually, he managed to stop playing and, and spent most of the rest of his life actually teaching, particularly at St Paul's Girls School. The big breakthrough was, of course, The Planets, which has become, I mean, turned him almost into a sort of one-work composer, but I mean, the output is much bigger than that. But he never wanted to repeat himself. I mean, so there are, there are the, the work immediately after The Planets, or very soon afterwards, The Hymn of Jesus, which is a completely contrasting work. And some of the later works are very interned and introspective. 
he found popularity something rather disconcerting. Talk me through the kind of the composition of the planets, the kind of the inspiration for it. I don't know how you as a as a host enthusiast, let's say, where you would place personally place the planets, whether you think it's the the seminal work or whether you think it's overrated or mm. obscures other things. Mm. Kind of talking through kind of its importance as a piece of music. Well, he came to the planets through an interest in astrology, which actually developed from his fascination with Sanskrit literature, which is one of the things that determined some of his early music. He wasn't exactly a believer in astrology, but he found it a very good hook to base the seven movements of the planets on the sort of astrological significance. So you get the title zone and Neptune, the mystic, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity, and so on. There characteristic of Hulse because they're all relatively short pieces. He worked best on a short scale, so there's no movement that lasts more than, say, seven or eight minutes. And they are quite unique in a way. There's nothing that parallels it. You might think of, you know, Mussorgsky's pictures of an exhibition as a, as a collection of pieces, or even, say, Debussy's La Mer, and he was certainly influenced by Debussy. I rate it very highly. I think it has overshadowed. There are other works which I personally prefer, but I have a, I have a great love of the piece and it doesn't go stale. There's always something new to find in it. Holst's seven movement suite, The Planets, would be his legacy. And because this is a podcast about Cheltenham and it's seven episodes long, I commissioned a composer, George Jennings, to reinterpret Holst's work for a podcast audience. Being asked to reference something as big as that and as culturally sort of well-known as that is scary because there'll be people who, who sort of find this music sacrosanct and who wouldn't want anyone to tinker with it. But at the same time, I love those kind of massive big projects because it gives you something to just sort of get your teeth into. So using sort of Holst as a co-composer is um, quite nice. I know that they're bombastic in a way. Well, a lot of them are. It's a good feeling for a composer to be able to sort of really go there. I might be wrong in saying this, but I sort of feel like they're maybe a little bit unfashionable at the moment, the, pla- the planets. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. There's the bit yeah. in is it, is it Jupiter where the tune that most people will know as I vow to thee my country comes in. And it's a bit like it's, it actually kind of throws you. It genuinely was the the, the most well-known pieces were the most challenging. Suddenly everything stops and then you get this sort of... I mean, if you were to just play on the piano, it'd sound like a piece of modern pop. I mean, I've just, I'm just going to even date what I know. But, you know, something that could be released by One Direction if you put a sort of drum beat behind it. I know they're split up. Uh, very sad. I think you've got, kind of got to lean into that and not be afraid of the, the well-known aspect of it and the the slightly unfashionable aspect of it and I went full sort of pet shop boys with it and uh, turned it into some sort of almost dance track in the sort of vein of always on my mind. Okay, now back to Bletchley and its enigmas. The British had bought and examined an Enigma machine in the 1920s, and they were able to facilitate a small amount of decryption during the Spanish Civil War. But by the 1930s, alterations made by the Germans to their military-grade Enigma machines had shut the British out, 
and whilst Polish mathematicians were having some success under the leadership of Marian Rejewski. By the time war broke out in 1939, Nazi Germany was fairly confident of its ability to secrete communications behind the Enigma Wall. And this is the point at which Bletchley Park enters the story, in so much as a 58-acre country estate can do much entering. But to metaphorically grant Bletchley Park arms and legs briefly, with the advent of war in Europe, British Signals Intelligence was about to burst onto the scene with a full chorus line of can-cans and jazz hands. When they first got there, there were just over 100 of them. Because of the way recruitment was done into that sort of secret organisation during the interwar years and indeed the First World War, because some of them had been part of the government code and cipher school during the First World War, they were largely people from the establishment. And even the secretaries were the daughters of people within the establishment because there was this widely held view at the time within government and within secret organisations that these were the people you could rely on in an emergency. These were people who wouldn't tell secrets and, and let secrets go. So as they initially expanded, you get a lot of young women coming in to work who are actually upper class girls, they're debutants. But that doesn't last very long because in 1940, beginning in 1940, they break the German Enigma cipher, the famous cipher broken at Bletchley Park. And at that point, they start expanding far more rapidly. Obviously, they need young men who would be able to break the codes and ciphers who were mathematicians and the reason I say young men here is not because I'm sexist on my part it's because in those days young women were not expected to do maths at university it was just seen in what was obviously a very sexist way Uh, it was seen something that wasn't of interest to young women so A lot of the mathematicians came in from the universities and the place begins to expand and then you need more young women. And there were odd places like Aberdeen um, University had a large number of female maths graduates, so you could get those women in from there. They also needed women to do clerical roles, not just breaking the codes. There was a lot of work in terms of listing messages so they could be seen which messages might be broken easily writing down streams of numbers all this sort of stuff and it needed people who would just sit there and do it and so obviously with war on and the army and the air force and navy recruiting as many men as they could Bletchley Park didn't really have much call on men outside the mass graduates that they needed to break the codes I can't do better than the official historian, so I'm not going to try. That's the voice of Dermot Turing, author of X, Y and Z, the real story of how Enigma was broken. He is also, as you might have guessed, the nephew of Alan Turing. His personal opinion was that the work done at Bletchley Park, so the words are being carefully chosen, the work done at Bletchley Park could have shortened the war by as much as two years. What he is not saying is the work on Enigma shorten the war by two years or the work of Alan Turing shorten the war by two years. He, he didn't say that. The whole collective effort, 10,000 people working on a variety of different problems, but producing this intelligence product, which was giving unprecedented insight into 
thinking both at a strategic and at more tactical levels of what essentially battlefield commanders and strategic planners were going to have to think about next week they were presented essentially with a complete picture of what the enemy already knew. That was priceless. And I think it was the first time in any major conflicts that that sort of complete intelligence about what the other side are up to and what they're thinking, what they're thinking about possibly doing, that I think is what was in his mind when he said that it could have shortened the war by as much as two years. It's hard to overestimate the challenge during the war of decrypting the communications from an Enigma machine. Based on the positioning of the rotors and plugboard, the machine would produce a constantly randomising reinterpretation of the data being input on its standard keyboard. Well, fairly standard. Germans, of course, to this day use the Kvertz rather than QWERTY layout because they say things like Sexik and English says things like 60. This created a code with 103 sextillion potential combinations. All these numbers are getting quite sexy. Long before WhatsApp, this constituted end-to-end encryption. Machines had to be programmed to read one another and then move to different stations. German coders would use ever-changing passwords, creating a secure tunnel for the communications. So even with seized or purchased Enigma machines to disassemble and analyse, the team at Bletchley Park still had all their work left to do. This wasn't just a hardware issue. It was an issue with that softest of software, the human brain. So, how did they crack it? Well, Alan Turing and the teams in Huts 3, 4 and 8 used a combination of maths, behavioural science and supercomputing, or what passed for supercomputing, in 1941. At Bletchley Park, when they started at Bletchley Park, the codebreakers would have a pad of paper, a pencil and the messages with the codes on, and they'd work from that. By the end of the war, they were working on using, for one of the ciphers, they were using the world's first operational electronic digital computer, Colossus. And so that went on, that expanded. Actually, the Americans, although the British had developed that computer, the Americans took that far further and they had the lead on technology for for many years until the 70s when you start to see GCHQ getting back into that. And Dermot, for you as someone who has kind of come to this story half a century almost after your uncle died, what's it been like to experience the process of transforming someone who had a kind of very difficult life and a life in which, you know, he was persecuted through to being commonly accepted as one of Britain's greatest ever people? I mean, how has the legacy of Alan Turing just transformed so dramatically in the course of your life? I'm glad you asked me that because, again, we have a slightly distorted picture of what really is the truth here. You said that he'd been persecuted. I don't think that's right, actually. He was prosecuted under the law as it was at the time. And I think we all now accept that the law as it was at the time was completely unfair, inhumane and uh, not in accordance with the sort of spirit of how we see ourselves today. But in the 1950s, it was a different kind of social attitude in prevailing. He was prosecuted by a very zealous police force who obviously wanted to enforce this particular piece of legislation. But Alan was not the only one who was prosecuted under it. This was the way that they got their statistics to look good was by going and prosecuting gay men. 
And so far from per being persecuted, Alan Turing was actually let off. All the other guys got fined or sent to prison and he was let off. He was actually put on probation. And that was because GCHQ, amongst other things, GCHQ sent one of their folks who'd worked with Alan at Bletchley Park to come along and as a character witness and to explain what an important contribution he'd made during World War II and what a disaster it would be to send him to jail and treat him like a common criminal. It was after he came out of the courtroom that things all started to go horribly wrong because part of the condition of being put on probation and not sent to jail was that he would present himself for medical treatment. I mean, this is equally Kafka-esque because it regarded if you're not a criminal because you're gay, then you must be mad because you're gay. And so he was being he was sent off to have psychoanalysis, but then also this awful hormone treatment. So he had to have injections and then an implant of synthetic estrogen, which was designed to try and either cure him of being gay, or I don't know quite what that means, or suppress his libido, which obviously, I mean, that's totally inhuman. But that, I think, is the sort of craziness of the attitudes of the medical profession at the time to what being gay actually meant. So you asked me about how all that sort of influences um, the way that we think about Alan Turing today. I think what's very easy is for people to take away this idea that this horrendous piece of legislation caused somebody who we now regard as being a war hero and then these terrible things happened to him and the belief that most people have is that that is what led directly to him taking his own life two years later. In fact, I'm reasonably confident that the two episodes are actually quite distinct and that the process of getting over what had happened to him as a result of being subjected to this treatment, as it was called, he pretty much got over that by the mid part of 1953 and he was back on an you know, back on being sort of normal form as being a professor and, you know, what he what he did best. I think we need to look elsewhere, and I think it was probably boyfriend trouble that uh, was the immediate cause of him taking his own life. Let me tell you one last thing about this, which is that I think that Alan Turing would have detested the idea that people could think of him as a victim. He was very defiant and sort of almost perversely proud about what had happened when he was in court, he didn't think he'd done anything wrong, and he was quite willing to stand up and tell the world that. That doesn't fit the image of somebody who is going to collapse under the strain of it all and, and to be regarded as some sort of victim. And I think he would have found that rather offensive, that people should come up with that kind of characterization of him. And uh, that, I think, is a sort of a symptom of his strength and sort of self-determination and, uh, and actually his very positive character. After the war, the government code and cipher school moved from Bletchley to Eastcott, an RAF base in Hillington, on the fringe of Greater London, for a few years before, in 1951, it relocated to Cheltenham. But the work done at Bletchley Park, and GCHQ as it would ultimately be named, remained a secret for decades. How was... Bletchley Park and the work that your uncle did there. How was it talked about when you were kind of growing up in your family? What people perhaps don't realise is that Bletchley Park was a closely guarded secret until the mid-1970s. And I'm, I'm afraid, sorry to say, that I'm now so old that I was a teenager until the 
end of the 1970s. So all, throughout all that time, it was a closely guarded secret. The only way the family found out what had happened at Bexley Park is through the media when, when through a sort of somewhat disorderly process, the um, story became public and that was partly uh, exercise in, in investigatory journalism and partly that the government realised that to try and conceal the existence of GCHQ from the public forever was going to be a doomed objective. So they decided to release it. Alan Turing's role at Bletchley Park in particular was really not at all well known until the mid-1980s um, when Andrew Hodges published the first sort of really sensibly, thoroughly researched biography of Alan Turing and revealed his role in creating the bomb machine there. So really, really, frankly, you know, the, that meant that we didn't talk about it at home. We didn't know there wasn't anything to talk about. We didn't know. <laughs> Secrecy. It's built into the fabric of GCHQ, and also into the rich tapestry of qualities required to make a good cryptographer or a good spy. The danger is that when people get used to hiding a secret so big, other, smaller secrets slip in as well, like drops of water in the ocean or blades of grass on a manicured Milton Keynes lawn. The best lies are lies buried in truth. That's the voice of Jenny Radcliffe, a people hacker and ethical burglar who advises on security protocols. You've got to keep whatever it is their their cover story is, needs to be quite close to who they are. By which I mean something like if someone's cover story was that they were a, I don't know, a computer technician, that would be no good with someone like me who isn't particularly good or interested in tech, right? So you stick to as close, or like if they're very athletic, stick to the athletic side of it. But don't say you're athletic if, again, that just isn't something you do. So a lie that has to be sustained over a long time needs to be as close to the truth as you can, move away from the true story, remember the cover story, which you're constructing, constructing, constructing all the time, and stick to that story. What you end up with in a lie, let alone a lie over time, is cognitive override, basically. Cognitive load's very, very high, and when our cognitive load's very, very high, other things stop. So, for example, in an interview, in an in a, in a interview with a criminal or, or with someone who was under suspicion of some kind, they find motor skills are one of the first things to go if they're lying. So if you're going to sustain a lie over time, it needs to be something that you can live quite easily and really be mostly true until the point it isn't. How much of good, or perhaps we should say competent for the sake of moral judgment, how much of competent lying is innate and kind of character personality driven and how much of it is kind of research and applied the success of a lie depends on three things it depends on the liar on the lie detector so who's watching out and who's trying to spot it and the lie itself so lies without many consequences like oh you know your lasagna is fabulous your bum doesn't look big in this are harder to spot and easy to sustain because consequence is very, very important. Accomplished liars, it becomes almost, they can't help it, it becomes almost pathological and, and it's just constantly. So an accomplished liar, someone who lies all the time, some sociopathic tendencies, that is harder to spot. But at that point, it depends on the lie detector because what you're actually looking for then is even if someone's kind of very smooth in this story, is rehearsed it very, very well, that in itself's an indication. Alan Turing was arrested for gross indecency, an unpleasant contemporary euphemism for homosexuality, in 1952, 
on the first full day of the reign of Elizabeth II. Isn't history a funny thing? So long and, at the same time, so short. It's like when you think about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were knocking about for around 179 million years, up to 65 million years ago, when, at the end of the Cretaceous period, some sort of meteorite or comet made impact with the Earth, in an extinction event that immediately wrote off those dinosaurs and their 179 million years of dinosaur social history. Humans, which is to say Homo sapiens, have been knocking about for 300,000 years. In case you're, like me, not a mathematician, 300,000 goes into 179,595,000 times, which is to say that dinosaur history accounts for almost 600 times the entirety of human existence, which might seem like a relatively inconsequential tidbit, but stop for a second and think about everything. The sheer density of history that humans have squeezed into 300,000 years. And then think about those 179 million years, where the Earth was just full of dinosaurs doing their dinosaur business, and each day followed on from the next with no sense of social or cultural development. Just a hard reset, like a bad 80s sitcom where whatever shenanigans have occurred, whatever change has been enacted, everything will be the same again tomorrow. So 70 years is a nothing amount of time to dinosaurs, and a grain of sand to Homo sapiens as a species, but it's almost everything to an individual. Indeed, for Alan Turing, who took his own life in 1954 at the age of 41, it was more time than he'd ever get. Enigma. Someone or something that's hard to understand. A puzzle. A riddle. To some extent, all people are enigmas. Such is the nature of the human trifle. We are built in tears of conflicting impulses and desires, soaked in a social context at perpetual odds with the individualistic needs, run through with the rich syrups of human frailty and human courage, and topped off, as ever, with the screaming void-like certainty that we all will die. We're all enigmas. But there are some people who are even less explicable than the rest of us. People who live in the margins of society. People who lead double lives or triple lives or scarcely live at all. People whose eyes give nothing away and whose sense of self is so tightly encrypted that all the supercomputing power of Hut 8 at Bletchley Park couldn't break them down. On the next episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, we'll start decoding one of the greatest enigmas in British intelligence history. This has been the second episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings, based on The Planets by Gustav Holst. The entire score for the series is available now to stream on Spotify. This is the second part of a seven-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you've enjoyed the show, please go to your podcast provider and leave a rating and a very positive review, please. And do recommend the podcast to friends, family and colleagues. That's how the show finds its audience, which is the most important thing to me. And feel free to tag me in any Twitter or Instagram posts at Nick FT Hilton and at Nick underscore Hilton, respectively. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods, that's P-O-D-O-T pods.com.